So we're going to look at design in biology, a study of the birds. You know, Jesus said, consider the birds. They don't toil and labor. They don't sow and reap and harvest and gather into barns. And yet your heavenly Father provides for them. So they are a symbol of God's care for his creatures. If he cares for our little fine-feathered friends, he certainly cares for us because we're made in his image and he has paid a king's ransom to rescue us from sin. So we are indeed blessed. And by studying the birds, considering them, we can see the fingerprints of God on even these little creatures that are so common. They have the unmistakable fingerprints of God's omniscience and omnipotence and how he created them. Ah, okay. Now, I usually start out by quoting uh, Richard Dawkins, who is considered uh, the world's uh, leading atheist spokesman today. He said, biology is the study of complicated things that give the appearance of having been designed for a purpose. Well, gee, maybe if it appears to be designed, it's because it actually was. But in his evolutionary atheist philosophy, he cannot accept design for what it straightforwardly seems to indicate. So he says it's just an illusion. It appears to have been designed by an intelligent designer, but actually it was designed by natural selection, which is not an intelligent process. I quote here Sir Francis Crick, Nobel Prize winning biologist, and he said that biologists must constantly keep in mind that what they see was not designed, but rather evolved. Now, why do they have to bend their minds with this mentality? Because otherwise, the truth of creation will scream forth from the world of biology. So they have to program their minds to think in a certain mindset. Now, Richard Dawkins again says, we have seen that living things are too improbable and too beautifully designed, quote unquote, to have come into existence by chance. So he says, even the apparent design, the illusion of design, is still so complicated, it could not happen by chance alone. Oh good, well then we need a creator. Oh no, we need a substitute creator who is not intelligent. Because he doesn't want an intelligent creator, he might be accountable to that kind of a creator. Yeah, he'd rather have an unintelligent process known as natural selection. So Richard Dawkins has written a book called The Blind Watchmaker. And in there, he is hearkening back to the famous analogy of William Paley. William Paley said, if you're walking down a trail in the woods and you stub your toe on something and you pick it up and look at it, and it's a gold pocket watch, you don't say, oh, wow, some sap fell out of the pine tree and chemically reacted with the soil and a little sunlight and lightning provided energy and presto changeo, we've got a gold pocket watch. I said, nobody would say that. We've never seen that happen in the history of the world. It only arises as a result of an intelligent designer, a watchmaker. And he said, if something like a watch requires an intelligent designer, how much more does the far more complex world of nature and biology require a creator? That's basically the same argument that Aristotle used thousands of years previous to Paley to refute the evolutionists of his day. See, Darwin didn't begin the theory of evolution. That's an old theory. It's just that he claimed that he could explain design without a designer because natural selection supposedly filled that place. So Richard Dawkins uh, says that things appear to be designed because they were designed by this blind watchmaker, which he calls natural selection. Now the problem with natural selection is that it's not just blind, it's also brainless and unconscious. Now imagine if you're laying on an operating table and you're dying of heart failure, you need immediate surgery or you're going to die, and oh, well, here comes the heart surgeon. They roll him in the door on a gurney, and you find that he's blind, brainless, and unconscious. Well, guess what? You're going to die. 
That guy can't help you, and neither can the blind watchmaker's substitute help the evolutionist. It's simply an inadequate creator. It's not even worthy of being called a designer or a creator. Now then, DNA, deoxyribonucleic acid, is a very, very complex information molecule, far more uh, able to store information efficiently. It's the most efficient information storage and retrieval system known in the universe, far more so than our computerized information processing systems. But how did it get there? It's not life itself, but it is information. And information is an interesting thing. Information is not matter, and it's not energy. It is information. If the whole of the reality is nothing but matter and energy, as the evolutionist atheists say, wherefrom comes information which is not matter, and it's not energy? It is merely imposed upon matter and energy by a transcendent, intelligent author. But it does not reside intrinsically in matter or energy. It comes from a transcendent mind. And yet all of biology is based on information that is stored, retrieved, and translated and actuated so that things can grow and self-maintain and eventually reproduce. It's all programmed by this blueprint. But where does an informational blueprint come from if it's not inherent in matter and energy? There must be a transcendent mind, an intelligent creator. Now, DNA is not life in and of itself. You need a whole lot more than that, but it's very essential. Yet a less than average sized DNA molecule of only 1,000 nucleotide units, average size would be more like around 1,200, uh, to get that by chance with the right bonds, with the right three-dimensional configuration <coughs> excuse me, of the atoms, excluding the non-biological components, non-biological compounds that would be in the environment, conservative calculation, one chance in 10 to the power of 1,600, number one with 1,600 zeros after it. Then you have to factor in the code. The nucleotides, the alphabet letters, so to speak, have to be in the right order, just like letters in a sentence to carry proper information. You factor that and multiply it in, it's uh, close to 10 to the power of 2,200. Now, to put that in perspective, the estimated number of protons, electrons, and neutrons in the entire observable universe is only about 10 to the 80th power. This number is 10 to the 2,200th power. So billions and trillions and quadrillions of universes having chance events taking place in all the atoms and all those universes for trillions times trillions of years literally would not put any significant dent in that number. It could not be achieved with all that time and all that effort with trillions and trillions of universes cooperating by chance. Uh, you can do it by intelligent design pretty quick. Uh, that we can do. Putting together a whole cell from scratch completely beyond our technological capability even in the 21st century. But Things like this can be done rather rapidly in the laboratory today by intelligent design. Trillions and trillions of universes, trillions of years of time would not suffice to do it by chance. That's a fact of mathematics now that we know the true complexity of life at the molecular level, which Darwin did not know in the ignorance that prevailed in the middle of the 1800s when he proposed his theory. His theory really got away with a lot because we're so ignorant about how complex life really is. But we're not ignorant anymore. But Dawkins, he claims that mutations and natural selection, the substitute designer, the blind watchmaker, can account for this. Now, mutation simply means change. But in the evolutionary sense, it means a random, unintelligent, accidental change. There cannot be any intelligent guidance. No, that's not allowed. Now, you don't have to live long in this life before you realize that a series of blind, random accidents never makes things better. 
It just doesn't work that way. Any engineer will tell you, we don't leave anything up to chance. We force things to happen. So many things can go wrong. We have to constantly control and take appraisal and make things happen. If, if you don't do anything, it goes to pot. Yeah, we live in a cursed world of bondage of corruption and decay left to themselves, left to time, chance, natural laws, and accidents. Things go downhill. They don't get better. Well, evolution says the opposite, which is very unscientific because everything we can observe is what science is all about, says it doesn't. Now then, here we have a sentence frequently used in typing practice because it contains all 26 letters of the English language, the quick brown fox jumped over the lazy dogs. You remember in high school or even college, typing this as a drill over and over to learn the basic keyboard. Now, if what the evolutionists are saying is true, we can do a little experiment. Can random accidental changes improve and expand this information? That's basically what they're saying, only with a far more delicate and complex information system known as DNA. DNA is the genetic code. It is the language of life. It's every bit as much a real language system as the English language or the Morse code. But how can any formal language system, which is based on the delicate balance of following the language convention, following the rules, having the symbols of the language in the right sequence to carry meaning and information, how can you randomly accidentally change that and get anything better? Well, we can test it out and see if what they say is true. Let's say we have three random mutations, which are analogous to typographical errors, okay? Let's see if we improve it here. We get the Dwick Brown Aox jumped over the LASF Eogs. Yeah. Uh, that didn't help too much. Maybe, maybe six random typographical errors will make the difference. Well, we get the Dwick Brazen Aox triumphed over the LASF Eogs. Well, that sounds a little Swedish, perhaps. But I'll guarantee you there's no Swede that can read that. Just a few random changes, and we've taken meaningful information <clears throat> and debilitated it to useless gibberish that no longer communicates useful information. When you do this to the blueprint, blueprint language of life, it can be catastrophic. That's why mutations that are big enough to really be observable almost always produce blindness and sterility and disease and deformity and death. It's a process far more likely to cripple you or kill you than it is to help you. But when you get rid of the true God, and you worship the false god of natural selection, the blind watchmaker, that's the best you can do. So, good luck. Now, another analogy I love is this fellow sitting on his easy chair, throwing rocks at his old analog television set. And he says, maybe this next rock will mutate this analog set into a widescreen, high-definition TV. Well, that's about as much hope for that as it is for mutations to improve the genetic code. Really, it's the same problem. You're damaging old parts. How can damaging old parts bring into existence de novo new parts that never existed before, but which have to come into existence in order for a different type of TV set, widescreen, high-definition, digital TV? Damaging old parts doesn't do anything but damage them. It doesn't bring into existence new and better parts. Even a child could understand that. They learn that by experimentation and observation, don't they? Okay. <clears throat> To his credit, Theodosius Dubjansky, the greatest evolutionist of the 20th century, he said an accident, a random change in any delicate mechanism, can hardly be expected to improve it. Poking a stick into the machinery of one's watch or one's radio set will seldom make it work better. Well, indeed, if the design is an optimal design, any deviation from that proper design will make it work less well or not at all. And the same is true with the delicate balance of the blueprint genetic information of life. 
You don't tinker with something like that and expect it to get better. It will only get worse. Now then, therefore the natural selection deception is this. Natural selection, survival of the fittest, has no power to create new and better biological information. Rather, it is wholly at the mercy of random destructive mutations to provide the necessary new information. Since random mutations cannot produce the needed results, natural selection is left helpless with nothing better to select. Now, this is important because Dawkins and other evolutionists say, oh, you accuse us of believing in just random chance. No, it's not random. Natural selection makes it like an intelligent designer. Natural selection chooses only the best and rejects the worst, and therefore it's not just random. Wait a minute. What does natural selection get to select from? Only what random processes produce. And if you take good information and randomly mutate it, what do you get? Corrupted information, and the more you do that, it becomes eventually unintelligible, or in the biological sense, you're horribly crippled or dead. So natural selection gets to select corrupted and more and more corrupted information. It cannot select new and better information because the random process it's dependent on can't give it. If the random process can't produce it, neither can it be selected. Now, that's not that difficult to understand, but they seem to have a mental block. Their god, their substitute creator, can't possibly be wrong. Oh, Baal, you know, they'll cut themselves and scream, oh, Baal. Well, sorry, it doesn't work. You know, Elijah, he had the true God. Man, he answered with fire. He licked up the water and consumed the sacrifice. Well, that God has showed up in space and time, history. He walked on water, showing his power over the law of gravity. He raised the dead, showing his power over the second law of thermodynamics. He multiplied the loaves, showing a creative miracle out of nothing but his own power. He demonstrated his credentials as the creator. Where is the demonstration that their bail, natural selection, can do anything? There isn't any other than in their own minds. How pathetic. So we find that the question arises, has the theory of bird evolution laid an egg? Well, Dr. Michael Denton is an agnostic evolutionist, but he has written one of the most devastating critiques of Darwinian theory that you could ever hope to read. It's called Evolution, a Theory in Crisis. And he is very well qualified. He's an MD. He also has a PhD in molecular biology. And he said Darwin's theory is kaput, it doesn't work, it's a bad theory. We need to come up with a new theory that will work, but the first thing we must do is destroy the old theory so it's no longer in the way. So he wrote this book to destroy Darwinian evolution and to hope that we could figure out a new and better theory. You read the book, you think you're reading a book by a creationist. Even though he's an agnostic evolutionist, very highly qualified, he devastates Darwinian evolution. And he says one of the most puzzling things is how the amniotic gelatinous egg of the amphibian, which has to be laid in water or it dries out on dry land, how that could be mutated and turn into the hard-shelled amniotic egg. It's not just the difference of having a hard shell. That's only one difference. There are seven additional major physiological changes that have to be coded in DNA. If just one of them out of the eight fails, you lay an egg on land, it doesn't hatch, it doesn't work. You go extinct as a species because you cannot reproduce. And he said, you know, these things are so complex, even in evolutionary terms, it would take millions of years to get even one of them, much less all eight simultaneously. How long do you have to wait to lay an egg and make it work, you know, before you go extinct because you can't reproduce? 
He raises a very good problem here, and I think it has put egg all over the faces of these evolutionists. Now then, we're going to look at the feather that broke the theory's back. We have all heard of the proverbial straw that broke the camel's back, but the feather, though light and wispy, has landed on the overburdened back of Darwinian evolution with the crushing impact of a ton of bricks because it contains such fantastic evidence of intelligent, purposeful design, the very antithesis of what could have happened by a bunch of random, blind, destructive mutations. Now, the evolutionists are forced to believe that reptile scales somehow evolved into the complex geometric structures, microscopic structures of feathers. Very different. The scales are just keratinous material, like your fingernails are made out of, in folds on the outer skin of the reptile. Whereas feathers grow from under the skin, not just on the surface, in a follicle like hair, except when they grow out, they diverge into amazingly complex microscopic geometric patterns, which are the uh, necessary engineering for it to work the way it's supposed to work. Feathers actually represent uh, you know, a marvelous engineering solution to the problem of powered flight. You have to have something that's lightweight, yet impervious to air, so air can't flow through it, and yet resilient, so that if damage is done, it can be easily repaired. If a bird gets its feathers ruffled, it just pulls it through its beak, preens it, everything zips right back together. Why? Because microscopically, it's designed as a super zipper system. Isn't that amazing? All these microscopic parts, barbules, hooks, uh, shafts, uh, up to a million of them in a large flight feather in a large bird. I hardly think that randomly mutating the DNA for a reptile scale could come up with this marvelous design. It just taxes credulity to even think so, and yet when you get rid of God, you have nothing better but the pathetic false God of mutation and natural selection. Now, I quote here Darwin himself in his life and letters. <clears throat> he said, I remember well the time when the thought of the eye made me cold all over, how the eye with all its interdependent parts could all come together by chance, you know, and work, when unless everything is working together, it doesn't work at all, including it has to be programmed in the brain to even understand the signals sent from the eye. All of it had to be simultaneously programmed by a bunch of chance random accidents. But he says, I've gotten over this stage of the complaint, and now small trifling particulars of structure often make me very uncomfortable. The sight of a feather in a peacock's tail Whenever I gaze at it, makes me sick. Well, you know, it would make me sick too if I had to explain such exquisite beauty and function as a result of a bunch of blind, random, destructive accidents. Now, here we have the Western flicker, which is a woodpecker. And woodpeckers are amazing birds in that God has endowed them with many physiological and anatomical attributes to allow them to make a living as a flying jackhammer, which is no small feat because if you are an ordinary bird and you try to play jackhammer, you will crack your bill and crush your skull and turn your brains into mush very quick. And that's not very good for survival value. And uh, you need much more than that even to be successful as a woodpecker. Now, the woodpecker has very unique and different features from ordinary birds. For one thing, it has unusual tail feathers, short, much stiffer than normal. They actually buttress into the side of the tree trunk to give it a kind of a tripod stance so it can hammer into hardwood very effectively. They have unusual feet in that they have two toes forward and two toes in the rear, kind of a pincher design. Most birds, you'll notice, have three toes forward and one in the rear, which is great for perching and for walking. But when you need to move around on the outside of an old dead tree trunk with no bark, you need to pinch right into that wood. And they can move around with the utmost dexterity and never fall off because of their amazing feet. 
And it is an amazing feat that they can do that, if you'll pardon the pun. Anyway, <clears throat> they have a uniquely durable beak, much thicker than normal birds, sharpened like a chisel. And inside, the microscopic examination shows all kind of cross braces to give it strength and resiliency so it won't crack, it won't break under a tremendous g-forces that it has to endure. Now, we know in physics that uh, energy will transfer through a solid surface and transmit from the beak into the brain case, which will crack the skull and turn the brains into mush. So you have to have something there. Chance just has to provide a very special shock absorber in between the beak and the skull case. Even that is not sufficient in itself. The skull of the woodpecker has to be very unique, very robust, very much thicker than normal, having those cross braces to give it resiliency and strength, and it has an internal shock-absorbing lining to protect the brain. So you don't get brain contusions as you're hammering into wood hundreds of times a minute, exerting tremendous g-forces. In some cases, the, uh, some woodpeckers actually have tendons that'll grab a hold of the brain and suspend it while it's hammering so the brain doesn't slam in to the interior of the skull. Now, <clears throat> of course, without that, you would die very quick trying to play jackhammer. In addition to that, if you don't have exceptionally strong neck muscles, it's all an object lesson in futility. Everything else there, you might not die, but you won't succeed. You have to have sufficient strength. All of this had to be there simultaneously for the woodpecker to survive and to be successful in drilling holes into hard wood. But even then, he's not successful. When he's tapping on the wood, the wood-boring insects can hear, ah, the woodpecker's out there. They have their little escape chutes that they run down, stick out their little legs, and say, nobody's going to pull me out. So you have to have a long tongue to pull them out. Now, first of all, I want to point out the woodpeckers endure g-forces that are almost unbelievable, up to 1,000 g's of force hundreds of times per minute. Now, to put that in perspective, fighter pilots train very hard. They work out. And they're very physically fit. But in dogfighting, if they're pulling a sustained turn at 9 or 10 g's, the blood will drain out of their head. They'll pass out and die after usually just several seconds. You can't do those maneuvers very long before it takes its toll. Uh, in the case of our missiles, air-to-air dogfighting missiles have to maneuver faster than any other missile going after an aircraft that's trying to evade the missile. Very tight germs, uh, turns producing tremendous G-forces, and they've engineered them to withstand 60 Gs of force in a tight turn without breaking up in the air. Uh, that's pretty impressive. This bird does thousand Gs of force, hundreds of times a minute, and apparently doesn't even get a headache. To me, that's superior engineering, to say the least. Now, notice these birds say, what are those birds trying to do? They'll kill themselves. The other bird says, oh, it's all right. They just haven't evolved yet. Well, you know what? It's not all right. If you want to mimic a woodpecker, if you don't have the right anatomy, you will break your beak, crack your skull, turn your brains to mush, and that's not good for survival of the species. You'll all go extinct trying to play without the right anatomy, but how long would it take to evolve all that anatomy simultaneously? If any one of them is missing, you die. So it all has to all be there or it doesn't work at all. Now then, as I pointed out, <clears throat> you have to be able to reach in and get those bugs. So you have to have, in the case of woodpeckers, a tongue that extends three to five times the length of the beak. Now, that's a bit of a problem. How do you have a tongue that long? Most birds have tongues that are rooted in the base of the throat. But when you have a tongue this long, if you pull it back in your mouth, it will clog your air passage, and you'll strangle on your own tongue. Not very good for survival. Of course, you could just leave it hanging out all the time. It would dry out. 
And the first time you try to chisel into wood, you'd clip your tongue right off. That wouldn't work too good. But there is an amazing engineering solution. Instead of rooting the tongue in the base of the throat, as most birds are, it's rooted in the right nostril. It goes under sheaths of skin around the skull and splits. And thus it hangs on the side of the neck, not blocking the air passage. It can extend three to five times, come back, never any problem. Well, it's a marvelous engineering solution, but I don't think blind, random, destructive mutations could do that. I think a supreme engineer figured this out. Now, we also have the case of the European green woodpecker, which also has a long extending tongue and a unique engineering solution. There's more than one way to skin the proverbial cat. It has its tongue in a sheath along the side of its neck, and it, um, it comes through this sheath over the top of the head. It goes into the nostril and then out the beak. Comes in, retracts, extends. Works just as well as the other design, but I don't think either design was engineered by a bunch of blind, random, destructive mutations. I think a supreme engineer figured this out. Now, even with that, you know what? It's still an object lesson in futility for the woodpecker. The woodpecker still can't make a living. The woodpecker still can't get those wood-boring insects. Why? Because they go down at the end of their tube in the wood, and they put out their little feet, and they don't want to be pulled out. You might lick them and taste them with your tongue, but you can't pull them out. That's why woodpeckers mostly have harpoon-shaped hard barbs at the end of their tongues, so they can harpoon and skewer those things and pull them out whether they want to come or not. However, in some woodpeckers, as we see on the far left, they don't have the harpoon. How in the world do they get the bugs out? Well, they just so happen to have glands on the end of their tongue that extrude a certain biological superglue. Now, if you've ever gotten superglue on your fingers and stuck together, you know it sets up real fast and you're going to lose some skin if you don't have some solvent <laughs> to get it released. So it sticks it in there, and all kinds of bugs get stuck to its tongue like superglue. They can't get off. Then it pulls all those bugs back and chokes on a mouthful of bugs because they're still stuck to its tongue. But it just so happens in that type of woodpecker that it also has glands in the beak that extrude a certain instant solvent for the biological superglue. So it releases perfectly. They swallow them. No problem at all. A little hard to believe, blind, random, destructive mutations figured all that out. Now then, one prominent evolutionist at the editorial staff of a prestigious scientific magazine confided to the author, after examining the woodpecker's skull, quote, there are certain anatomical features which just cannot be explained by gradual mutations over millions of years. Just between you and me, I have to get God into the act, too, sometimes. But it's just between you and me. Don't tell anybody. I don't want to lose my job, you know. Now, how many of you saw the documentary film uh, Expelled? No Intelligence Allowed. Okay. Excellent. Those of you who haven't, it's on YouTube. You can watch it for free. Just type in Expelled. Uh, and uh, it comes up with foreign subtitles, but the film itself is in English. So ignore the subtitles. You can watch it for free. Well worth your time. It really documents how today, if you say you believe in a creator, intelligent designer, you will be ostracized from the scientific community. Doesn't matter how many PhDs you have, doesn't matter how many rewards you have in the scientific community, you will commit the unpardonable sin if you dare say that evolution was insufficient, we need a creator. So that's what this guy's getting at. Between you and me, don't tell anybody else. I don't want to lose my job. What a sad state of affairs in a country founded by founding fathers who said it was an obvious fact. We hold these truths to be self-evident that there's a creator. How do we fall so far from that self-evident truth? Well, I'll tell you how. Wrong people get in office, the wrong people get in education, and they start brainwashing everybody with a lie. 
The bigger the lie, the better, and the longer and the louder you hear it from cradle to grave, pretty soon everybody starts believing it. It's a sad state of affairs when you think about it. Now then, on the left, we have the European Starling. Now, the European Starling is an artificial import. Somebody got the bright idea back in the late 1800s that all the birds mentioned in the works of Shakespeare should be released in Central Park in New York, and they did that. Well, this is a very hardy bird, and within several decades, it had spread clear across North America. It likes to nest in holes. It does not it cracks, crevices, holes. It often will take over uh, woodpecker nests and actually kick the woodpeckers out. They're that tough, mate, believe it or not, these starlings. They don't make regular nests. They, they like the holes. And so they live in the same area as woodpeckers, often displacing them out of their own holes, and yet they don't have any of the anatomy that the woodpecker uses to go after wood-boring insects. Which begs the question, why did this evolve in the first place? Why didn't all birds turn into woodpeckers if it was so important that you must have that anatomy to get at wood-boring insects? Obviously, in the case of the starling, we can see you don't need any of that. You survive just fine, even taking over territory from woodpeckers. So why did it evolve if it wasn't unnecessary? And how could it evolve by blind random destructive mutations? I think the answer is it wasn't survival value, but a specifically ordained job by the creator. God gave the woodpecker amazing physiology and anatomy to do a job no other bird can do, to go after wood-boring insects, even though it didn't need to, in order to survive. Now we're going to look at a breathtaking proposal. Evolutionary propositions range from hair-raising to just amazing to breathtaking in this case, because they have to propose that the standard bellows-type lung, where you have the diaphragm compressing the lungs to exhale and pulling back to inflate them, and where the air goes through the same passage, in and out the same passage, that lung had to evolve into the avian lung, the bird lung, which is radically different, which is designed to be a supercharged lung system, allowing birds to fly well over 20,000 feet altitude, day and night, 24-7, for weeks on end, transoceanic. They never get tired. They never lose their breath. They don't have to worry about being, you know, much less oxygen at high altitude. They have a radically different lung. Now, if the lungs fail, you die within minutes if you can't breathe. And yet this system had to be changed into the bird system. Now, one inherent difficulty with this system for birds, it wouldn't work very good for real high-altitude flight because this is not as efficient as the bird system. In this lung, you can't fully expel all the air every time. There's always some stale, oxygen-deprived air in your lungs. You can't fully exhale everything. So it's not as efficient as the birds. The birds have a marvelous multiple air pump circulatory system. They, they have these pumps, uh, compressible compartments, that actually pump in proper sequence to literally pump the air through the bird in a true circulatory fashion. So it comes in one tube, circulates through, and goes out another tube. It doesn't have it going in and out the same opening. So it's always the freshest air, no stale air, always the highest oxygen available in the atmosphere is contacting the blood. Far more efficient than what we have with the regular lung system. And this is radically different. I mean, how bland random destructive mutation is going to orchestrate this amazingly different system without the lungs failing in the meantime and you die for lack of respiration? Notice that when the air comes in in this true circulatory fashion, it even goes into the hollow bones of the birds, because when you're flying transoceanic day and night, 
you can easily overheat with all that expenditure of energy, but this actually goes into the air circulatory system, into their hollow bones to keep them cool. And it goes, goes through and comes out. Notice that the direction of the blood flow and the direction of the airflow, oops, get it back here, is in actual counter current fashion. The airflow goes in this direction, blood flow in that direction. That allows uh, the blood to strip off oxygen from the airflow more efficiently than in any other creature in biology. And it's essential for birds that are flying at high altitude. They have to have the most efficient supercharged system or they wouldn't be able to do the amazing things that they do. Now, in Europe, they found a vulture flying at 37,000 feet. No problem. It has the lungs to handle that altitude, that lack of oxygen. Put you up there at 37,000 feet, you're dead within minutes. Your lungs are not sufficient, efficient enough. But with this amazing system, it works for the birds. Now we're going to look at bird migration, a navigational nightmare for evolution, because we know now that birds don't teach their offspring how to migrate. It's innate. In other words, it's programmed in the DNA that's already in the egg. And in many cases, we can prove that the parents abandon their offspring while they're still fledglings, while they aren't mature enough, don't have enough body fat to make a long migration. They just take off and leave them. And unless those little birds have innately programmed in their DNA all this navigational capability, a kind of biological GPS, they wouldn't make it. But it's already there. Somebody put it there. I don't think blind random destruct mutations did it. Now, in the case here, we have some of the large migratory patterns of birds that travel many thousands of miles, the longest one being this red from the Arctic region in the north to the Arctic region in the south and back in one year, almost 50,000 miles. And that's done by the amazing Arctic tern, which is a beautiful looking bird, very graceful, very aerodynamic. It looks like it's a long distance traveler. Yet the record for the longest nonstop flight which we didn't know about until we developed tiny little uh, tracking devices that could be carried by birds and track them by satellite. It's actually held by not such a sleek looking beautiful bird. You know, God uses the humble and simple things to confound the wise, doesn't he? Well, God used the humbled shorebird, the bar-tailed godwit, to set the record. Bar-tailed godwit will eat food and build up muscle reserve, or not muscle, but fat for fuel until they look like they're a flying softball. You see these like, there's a softball with wings, there it goes, you know. Uh, and the reason is because we have now proven with satellite tracking, they fly nonstop from New Zealand, clear down here, all the way up to the Korean Peninsula and even mainland China. About 10,000 kilometers nonstop. Few aircraft could do that without in-flight refueling. But these little birds have been doing it for thousands of years. Later they found out it's even longer than that because some of them migrate from western Alaska, clear up here, all the way down to New Zealand, about 12,000 kilometers nonstop. The enormous um, efficiency of their metabolism and those very special supercharged lungs are the key to making that possible. In the case of the birds, they're actually designed so that the harder they beat their wings, the more it compresses these air sacs that cause the circulation of air through their bodies. And in other words, the more energy they expend, the harder they work, the easier it is for them to breathe and to convert to energy. Whereas with us, it's kind of the opposite. The harder you run, the harder you work, the more you gotta stop and catch your breath. And if, if you don't get enough oxygen, you have to stop, you get leg cramps, lactic acid builds up, all these problems. The birds are immune to that. They have to be, or they wouldn't be able to fly transoceanic. You know, what if, oh, I gotta stop and catch my breath in the middle of the ocean? You, know, you fall down and drown. So it is necessary, 
And it's not something that we can wait for time and chance to gradually perfect. If it doesn't work the first time you try to fly across the ocean, the whole species goes extinct. Now, the lesser white-throated warbler, it is uh, indigenous to Europe, especially Germany, and it likes to migrate south in the winter. Usually birds will fly south for better weather, and especially because there's more food available where there's better weather. So they want to get out of a harsh environment of winter like Europe is. And they fly all the way from Germany clear down to near the headwaters of the Nile at Lake Victoria, deep in the heart of Africa, thousands of miles away. But these birds leave their young when they're just little fledglings. Take off and leave them. You know, weeks later, they're finally mature enough, have enough body fat that they can take off. But their parents aren't there to guide them. You know, when their parents took off, maybe they turned left, maybe they turned right. You know, where did they go? Well, it does, it's no problem because their DNA has programmed them with a biological GPS system where they fly for the first time in their lives over thousands of miles of unknown sea and land and land in the very same tree and go right to the same hole where their parents are thousands of miles away. How do they do that? Well, we'll look at that. Here we have the Manx Shearwater, another master navigator. These like to migrate from their home burrows in Wales, in the British Isles, and they fly transatlantic nonstop to South America for the winter. So that's quite a long thousands of mile expenditure, no problem. Some thought, well, they have a simple navigation system. They have an instinct to fly southwest until they make landfall in South America. And then they have uh, an instinct to fly northeast, you know, to get back. So to test this out, they took some of these birds and put them in a box without any windows, so they couldn't see where they were heading, and put them in Boston, Massachusetts, okay? They released them there. Now, if they just had a simple instinct to fly, you know, northeast to get back home, they would have flown all the way from Boston, maybe up to northern, uh, um, uh, Greenland there, but that's not what happened. They knew exactly where they were. They took the most efficient route to get back to their home burrows in Wales. You just can't fool these creatures. They know where they are. You can't trick them. Now the black pole warbler, it spends its summer in Alaska, which in the summer is not so bad, but it wants to get out of Alaska for the winter, and that's understandable. And so it first flies transcontinental all the way from Alaska to the eastern seaboard near the U.S.-Canada border. Then it stops. Now, eventually, it wants to go down to South America, okay, right down here. But it stops and gorges on food to build up body fat because it knows it has to fly across the ocean and there isn't any land to stomp on. If it goes in the water, it'll drown. So it builds up. Somehow they can sense when they have enough body fat, when they have enough fuel. You know, it's like a fuel gauge. Oh, that's enough. You know, they, they sense it somehow. But even after it has enough body fat, it will not take off. It will stubbornly wait. What's it waiting for? Well, what it's waiting for is a cold front. Now, it hasn't gone to university and earned a degree in meteorology, but somehow it knows innately that if it waits for a cold front, it means fair weather and a tailwind to help it start out. So it waits until the weather is right. Then it takes off. But now it appears to have uh, transnavigated the continent with excellent navigation. Now it appears its navigation has gone fatally haywire. It takes off, but it's headed in the wrong direction. It's actually headed toward Africa instead of South America. It does not have enough fuel to make it to Africa. Even if it did, it would end up in the Sahara Desert, where there's no food and no water, and it would die. They'd all go extinct. The whole species goes extinct because of navigational malfunction. But it gets worse. This bird heading in the wrong direction beats its little wings and beats its little wings and climbs and climbs and climbs, expending all kinds of energy until it gets up to 20,000 feet altitude where there's only half the oxygen that there is at sea level. And even with their efficient lungs, they're just not as efficient as that altitude, and they're heading the wrong direction. 
So <clears throat> by all rights, it should run out of fuel, plummet down to the ocean, and perish in the North Atlantic. But it just so happens, even though, again, it did not get a degree in meteorology, it somehow knows that only at 20,000 foot altitude there is a prevailing wind with a southwesterly drift that provides the tailwind push and extra energy to push it very efficiently right down to South America. In fact, believe it or not, this roundabout navigation is actually more efficient than just flying due south. But how did it know? These birds don't have anybody teaching them. It's programmed in their DNA. How does it know it has to wait for a weather front? How do it know, know it's okay to expend that energy and climb to 20,000 feet? How does it know that there's a prevailing wind only at 20,000 feet? In this epic journey over the trackless ocean it's never navigated before, it's guided by nothing but programming in its DNA. How did that get there? The hand of God, yes, not random mutations. Long-tailed cuckoo. The long-tailed cuckoo is, is uh, not a cuckoo when it comes to uh, navigation. It's a master navigator. It pulls off a stupendous feat of navigation. It goes from New Zealand here, 4,000 miles nonstop to a tiny little Micronesian island. Micronesia means micro-sized islands. And that is an amazing feat. When you have a whole continent in front of you, well, if you offer a degree or two, no big deal, you'll make landfall. But if you only have enough fuel to go a certain distance and you miss that island because you're one half of a degree off in your navigation, you'll miss it by so many miles you can't see it from the air and you run out of fuel and you die. Now to put that in perspective, uh, we remember that when Charles Lindbergh was the first man to fly solo across the Atlantic, well he had the whole European continent in front of him. If he was off a degree or two in his navigation, he'd still hit Europe and then use you know, uh, landmarks to direct him to Paris, which is what he did. You know, he didn't. He wasn't perfect when he hit the continent. He had to get back on course. Uh, but, you know, if you're off half a degree, no big deal. Later, Amelia Earhart was the first female aviator to fly solo across the Atlantic. And she wanted to do the same thing Lucky Lindy did, land in, in Paris, you know. But she missed. She ended up in Ireland. But it was good enough for a transatlantic crossing. Later, Amelia Earhart wanted to do something no aviator in history had done at her time, and that was to transnavigate the globe by air. There was a problem. Even the Lockheed Electra back then did not have enough fuel to go far across the Pacific Ocean without landing to get more fuel. So she knew, man, I've got to hit an island in the middle of the ocean. That's going to require some pretty good navigation. So she hired the best one of the best aerial navigators of her era to make that portion of the flight with her. In spite of that, although there are many theories of what happened, the most likely theory, by their own testimony from their own radio transmissions, they said, according to our navigation, we should be right over the island now. We cannot see it from the air. They missed it by so much that even from the air, they couldn't see the island. They had a little bit of radio communication, then even that died off. They ran out of fuel and they died. That should have been happening to birds for thousands of years. But they have a GPS system superior to ours, less vulnerable than ours, been operating for thousands of years before we ever invented it. I don't think it got there by blind random destructive mutations. Now another amazing thing is that these birds will take off without sufficient body fat or fuel to make it all the way across the ocean or to their island. Well that should be mass suicide, end of the species, except they also have programming instinctually to fly in an aerodynamic V formation. Okay? That makes the difference. 23% less energy required, therefore less fuel will get them further. 
But they all have to have this instinct. You know, the guy here at, at the beginning, he's bearing the brunt of aerodynamic drag. And so they keep rotating so that they all share the burden. Now, <clears throat> if these guys in the back say, oh, we got it good back here, we're just going to stay back here, man. We're not going to the front. The whole flock would perish. But they have this powerful discipline to do the right thing. And that's the key to their survival. Now then, <clears throat> what are the secrets of migrating birds' navigational capabilities? Well, in Europe, in Germany, they had the West lesser white-throated warblers. Some of the German scientists thought, well, you know what? Uh, they may be navigating by the stars, like mariners have for centuries. So they raised them entirely in a planetary building. And as they changed the apparent orientation of the stars, these birds would perch in alignment with the proper stars that would lead them down to the headwaters of the Nile at Lake Victoria. Now, I'd like to know how random mutations could tell birds' DNA what stars to use to navigate by. That is transcendent, intelligent design. That cannot be explained by a bunch of random accidents. Now, at Cornell University, they used homing pigeons for studies. They found the homing pigeon would use the sun to de determine navigational direction. The problem is, with the changing of the seasons, the sun rises and has different positions above and below, or above or, or lower on the horizon. So you also have to have an internal biological calendar to make sure that you know where the sun ought to be at that particular season so you can use it properly to determine direction, which they have. They also have a built-in biological clock to help them determine longitude, which were a long time in the days of sail ships. It was a big problem determining longitude because they didn't have clocks that would work at sea. They had the pendulum clocks, you know, like grandfather clock. Put that on a ship, rocking and rolling at sea, it won't work. So they had developed the spiral watch spring. It, you could wind up like a marine chronometer, impervious to the rocking and rolling of the ship. Then they could determine longitude with time. Birds have an internal clock that determines longitude for them. And <clears throat> what if it's cloudy or foggy? Well, they have an independent navigation system based on the Earth's magnetic field that actually connects from the magnetic center in their brain to their optic nerve, which has led some scientists to believe that they not only sense the magnetic field, they can actually see it and thus have very precision orientation to it. They found at Cornell, if they put electromagnets, little electromagnets, on the pigeons' heads, it destroyed their ability to use the magnetic field, but they could still navigate by the sun if there was fair weather. So they have two independent means of determining direction. But determining direction is not the most important thing. What is it? It's knowing where you are. Then knowing the proper direction will help you get home. But they put these birds in boxes with no windows, take them hundreds of miles. They can fly up to 600 miles in one day. If it's further than that, it takes more than one day. But no matter where you take them in the world, you let them loose, and they fly around once or twice to orient their navigation system, and they take off on a beeline. They know where to go. I try to find churches with my GPS system. I plug it in, you know, and it says, acquiring signal, acquiring signal, acquiring signal, and I'm sitting there, I'm late, hurry up. You know, I wish I was a, had a pigeon, you know, I could let it loose, and it would immediately go in the right direction. I could just follow it, you know. But it's, Doggone GPS, half the time you have to wait there and the thing just, hey, you can't acquire the signal, you know. Can you hear me now? No. Okay, so, all right. So the biggest thing that the evolutionists have to explain is how the birds have programmed in their DNA a literal map of the Earth and some system that says you are here on the map, no matter where you take them, they know. We know how GPS does that with a constellation of satellites. How in the world do they do that? Nobody knows. But it's been in existence for thousands of years. It is more reliable than ours, not just because it works faster, but because it can't be taken out. One of the big problems with GPS is it's a military weapon, 
And our enemies say, you know, if we can hit some of their GPS satellites with missiles, which some of, the, some of our enemies are capable of doing that, takes down GPS. What if they hit them with a laser or other ray weapons? Take them down. What if there's a big solar flare? Knocks them out. What if there's just a, a master computer glitch? GPS doesn't work. Well, guess what? If any of that happens, it won't affect the birds one bit. God gave them a superior, reliable GPS system, which I wish we had. But only God can do that. Now then, <clears throat> to put this in perspective, you might ask yourself the question, how well could you navigate if you were treated like one of these birds? They put you in a box, no windows. They take you somewhere in the world, in some ocean, in some island, you don't know where. They let you out of the box and say you could fly like a bird, but you have limited fuel. If you don't take the most efficient route over the ocean, you will run out of fuel and drown. Ah, well, that's pretty high stakes. Well, you remember, when I was a Boy Scout, they taught me the sun rises in the east and sets in the west. So if the sun's out, I can determine north, south, east, and west. At night, I know where Polaris, the north star, is, so that's good. But the next morning, it's cloudy and foggy. Oh, no, what am I going to do? I can't take off. I don't know where to go. But then you remember, by golly, thank you, Jesus, last time I ate my box of Cracker Jacks, I remembered to keep the little... Uh, Magnetic compass I got, you know, and uh, so I can determine even if it's cloudy or foggy, north, south, east, and west. So I'm ready to take off, and all of a sudden it dawns on you. It doesn't matter that I can determine north, south, east, and west. I don't know where I am on the map, and that determines entirely what direction is the right direction to go to get home, and i got to take the most efficient route or I die. Life and death decisions, these birds do all the time, and they don't fail, because unlike us, they have a biological GPS system. We have to rely on man's very unreliable system. They've been doing it for thousands of years, and it was not the product of random accidents and natural selection. So in essence, the evolutionists have to explain how random mutations and natural selections put in a bird egg pre-programmed precision GPS navigation. I don't think they have anything approaching a reasonable answer. It wasn't by random mutations. It certainly was by divine design. Now, recognizing design is there a double standard. Yeah. Certain things the evolutionists have no problem at all admitting is intelligent design, such as the Tomahawk cruise missile. Oh, we're proud, man. Our computer uh, expertise and our aerodynamic expertise was all put in to make this thing work. It's just marvelous. Yeah, product of intelligent design. But how does it compare to something like a bird, like the uh, long-tailed cuckoo? First of all, we can ask, which is more complex? Well, anybody who knows anything about the world of biology knows that any biological creature, including one-celled bacteria, are far more complex than any machine man has ever dreamed of creating. To put it in simple terms, it can do something none of our machines can do. Autonomous self-replication. We would love to be able to make machines that could get together with other machines and have baby machines and just populate. Boy, it would save us a lot of time, effort, and money. But it takes enormous information science and complexity to pull that off. And there is nothing in the world of human machinery and technology capable of doing that feat, yet the tiniest single cell can do it. And birds, of course, can do it. I mean, it'd be nice if we could get mama and daddy cruise missile. And they'd get together and have baby cruise missiles that would grow up to adult cruise missiles that have their own babies. And my golly, we won't have to spend millions of dollars apiece for cruise missiles because we, you know, just start raising cruise missiles. Well, we would love to do that, but we can't. Only things made by God can auto-reproduce. It has his fingerprints all over it. The bird is therefore far more complex than any human machine. Secondly, which is more capable? <clears throat> well, a cruise missile can usually only do about 1,200, maybe 1,500 miles at the best in distance. By GPS, hit a target within about 30 feet, which is usually close enough. 
these birds, long-tailed cuckoo, remember, goes 4,000 miles nonstop, much greater range, can hit the same tree in the same hole where its parents were. That's even closer. Remember the bar-tailed godwit? 12,000 kilometers. Much greater range, much greater efficiency. It is more capable. But now, the $64 million question, which was designed and which happened by chance? Well, sadly, our scientists, our professors, are blinded and programmed to say, this is a product of intelligent design, and boy, we're proud of it. But this thing here, far more complex, far more capable, a bunch of blind, random, destructive accidents put that together. It taxes credulity, the blindness, it is said. God surely does turn over to a reprobate mind those who reject obvious truth. And they, they indulge in some kind of weird mental insanity, where in some cases like this, they can properly discern that the cruise missile is a product of intelligent design, but this far more capable, far more complex thing is not. How can they justify that? It's God's judgment on them. He blinds the minds of those. Satan blinds their minds because they were willfully blind, and God seals them with what? A judgment. Because they love not the truth and have their pleasure in unrighteousness, God shall send them a strong delusion that they should believe the lie, that they might all be condemned who love not the truth but have their pleasure in unrighteousness. In conclusion, we look at Darwin's confession in his famous book, The Origin of Species. He said, if it could be demonstrated that any complex organ existed, which could not possibly have been formed by numerous successive slight modifications, my theory would absolutely break down. Well, I think we have some examples of that with the birds, don't we? The bird egg, the bird lung system, the navigation system. You know, if it's not perfect and working, they die. Also, concerning instincts, of which the navigational instincts are truly amazing, Darwin said, Many instincts are so wonderful that their development will probably appear to the reader a difficulty sufficient to overthrow my whole theory. Amen, Brother Charlie. I'd agree. It does overthrow the theory. And when we look at the fact that birds have to have this complexity, it's not just window dressing. You don't have that right anatomy in total, you will kill yourself trying to play jackhammer. If you don't have all the right eight features, different between the amniotic egg and the gelatinous amphibian egg, you can't reproduce. It's the end of the species. If you don't have the right lung system, you dare try to fly at high altitude, you will pass out and die from lack of oxygen. And if you try to transnavigate oceans without the proper navigation system, you will die. It's not like, well, we get a little bit here, a little bit there over millions of years, finally it's perfect. It's either perfect right off the bat or you're dead. And only one thing can explain that, supernatural creation by God. So in conclusion, I quote Romans chapter 1, verse 20, where the Apostle Paul and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit said, ever since the creation of the world, his invisible nature and attributes, that is, his eternal power and divinity, have been made intelligible and clearly discernible in and through the things that have been made, his handiworks. Today, we've looked at just one of his handiworks, our fine feathered friends, the birds. And we see his omniscient, omnipotent fingerprints all over these little feathered creatures. They may be common, they may seem mundane, but when you look at what hides underneath those feathers, or even at the feathers, we see the masterpiece of God's creation. You know, you can only explain a masterpiece by a master, a master artist, a master engineer, and that's what we see here. So they are without excuse, altogether without any defense or justification. The scripture teaches that God's judgment is proportional and it's fair. God will not judge anybody worse than what they deserve, nor will he judge them less than what they deserve. Uh, in, in his word, God says, those who have sinned knowing full well what they were doing will be beaten with many stripes, so to speak. They'll have a, 
a more severe judgment, whereas those who sin not knowing quite as much what they were doing will be beaten with few stripes. Some will have a more tolerable judgment than others on the judgment day. Now, Darwin, in his day, was in a time of great ignorance. He didn't know about DNA, molecular basis of life. He didn't know about birds and their marvelous navigation and amazing lung systems and all this. It was not known in his day. He might actually plead for a little leniency on the judgment day. Well, God, you know, give me a more tolerable judgment. After all, I, I didn't do the math. I didn't make the discoveries. I didn't know all the stuff they knew in the 21st century. Well, he knew plenty that he did reject, which he certainly will be held accountable for. But what will the scientists today say? Oh, Lord, be lenient after all. We didn't know. We didn't make the discoveries. We didn't have the facts. We didn't know the math. They know more than any generation of scientists has ever known in history. And yet they wickedly, deliberately, stubbornly turn a blind eye and a deaf ear to the truth. And worse than that, they try to lead our children on the road to eternal ruin. And Jesus said, if you mislead these little ones, you offend them. Better to have a millstone hung around your neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. I pray they'll come to their senses because I wouldn't want to be in their shoes on the judgment day. All they have to do is look up at the stars, look up at the birds. I hope that when they do, it will dawn on them, this did not happen by chance. There is a creator who cares for the birds. There's a creator who cares for me. I'm not a product of chance. I have infinite value being made in the image of God. A king's ransom was paid for me because I'm actually worth it. God's not a fool. He wouldn't pay a king's ransom for people that weren't worth it. He gave us infinite intrinsic value when he made us in his image, something no other creature in the universe can lay claim to, not even the angels. We are a trinity, spirit, soul, and body. The angels just have spirits and souls. A spirit has not flesh and blood as I have, Jesus said at his resurrection. We are the unique creatures who will have the closest relationship to God. Angels may be close in their friendship of God, as servants of God. They have a phileo love, a brotherly love. We will have the intimate love. We will be the children. We will be the bride of Christ. The closest, most intimate relationship. Why? Because God made us in his image. We didn't evolve. And because of that, he didn't blink at paying the king's ransom for us. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame because he knew the reward was worth it. You're worth it. What an opposite, opposite uh, message from evolution. You're not worth anything. You came from nothing. Your purpose is nothing. When you die, there's nothing but oblivion. You're just a big nothing. I tell you, that's a lie from the devil. He comes to kill and steal and destroy. And the best way he can do that is tell you, you're nothing. You're worth nothing. You have nothing. Your purpose here is nothing. When you die, there's nothing. Might as well blow your brains out. You're really nothing. God says you're worth everything for eternity. That's the good news. And if they'll just even look at the birds, they come to the conclusion, there must be a God who cares for these birds he must care for me. That's what Jesus said.